You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Chris Blackwell, founder of Island Records. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. I think you need to be aware and see people be open to what can happen and get a feel for, get an instinct. I guess, I, I think I've been blessed with instinct. You know, I really did. I mean, I did not do well at school. I passed zero exams. I'm unemployable. But I've been blessed with having instincts because, you know, as I just told you, the instinct of you two was seeing their determination. The fact that the music itself initially wasn't close to what most of my music was, because most of my music was bass and drum, and most of their music was vocal. So it wasn't that it was like, you know, a certain kind of music that I like all the time. I like music from all different kinds of levels. And uh, I think that's one of the things which was lucky that the fact that I heard all this classical music at deafening volume in the early days. So I sort of learned to listen and to make your own little judgment that you end up liking most. I mean, I tended to like more Italian music than the German, even though and etc. was dramatic and everything, but I didn't feel for it as much as I felt for the Italian music, Puccini, etc. So that I think it's really those different sort of instincts from early time and also these different people. I got a chance to meet these different people and just see how you're open to the world. So in many cases, people get locked into one one sort of one sort of thing. But to me, I'm, I've been open at things coming from everywhere. <laughs> I think from meeting them, and getting a feel from them and just what their personality, what their character was, what the energy that was coming from them that I would feel. Do you know what I mean? I think that that was really it. For example, I was not initially interested in signing Cat Stevens. That was mainly only because I'd seen him before on television and the song he was singing was, I'm going to get me a gun. And I thought, I don't get that. So when somebody said that he was interested to meet with me, I wasn't really interested because I felt already that he was going in a different direction, which didn't sort of make, make sense to me. But when I met him, when I finally met and we just sort of sat down and he, he played a song and then he played another song. And then when he played the song Father and Son, then suddenly the, the lyric of the song and what it meant and everything, I suddenly felt the sky is, is fantastic. You know, what I person I'd seen on television had nothing to do with this person sitting in front of me. And so that's really when I said to him, well, and I opened up to him and I said, honestly, I wasn't really interested to meet. But this, this song that you've just sung for me is such an incredible song. And then we started to talk and uh, he said he started to open up and say, well, he had a difficult time with the label that he was working before because they weren't giving him much support to do what he wanted to do, etc. And so that was sort of, that was music to my ears because I felt that I could definitely connect with him. Well, that was the song. When I heard that song, that was it. That was the one that's just the fact that he was somebody who was thinking like that. Do you know what I mean? And it was just the way his care for that, you know. And in, in, in rock and roll, 
it's a lot of it is kind of rough and tumble. Whereas when he sang that song, the fact that's what he had created and that's the direction he was going, I thought, well, that's really something. And that's why I immediately sort of just jumped on it and said, listen, I'd love to do something with you. And uh, we came up with an idea of how we could get him out of the company he was with. And, and it started. And then after that, I helped him find another guitarist who he could work with, etc., who he'd chosen, really. And then I left it to him. I never went into the studio. I didn't go in and tell him what to do. It was just when he'd finished the album that he said, oh, it's finished. Let me come in here. And particularly T for the Tillman, that album, I mean, I'll never forget hearing that because you played the first song. I thought it was great. The second song, I thought it was great. The third song, I thought it was great. The fourth song, I thought it was great. And the fifth song, I thought it was great. And then they stopped to, to turn over the record to turn the second side. And the first song on that side was that one where with the children playing, and that was it. Grace Jones was on your radar for a while. How did that come to be? Well, the Grace one was also one of those things where I was having lunch with a couple of friends, and this guy said to me, by the way, there's this model who is just stunning, you know, and I think she's wanting to be a, a singer. You should find out about it. So I listened. And then, then a couple of days after, she was in a magazine. And, you know, she's a stunning-looking lady. She's amazing. And when I saw her there, I thought, in the magazine, I thought, well, well, I've got to follow up. I definitely will follow up. So I tracked down. And what had happened is that she had started doing a recording because she was more in the sort of fashion business. <clears throat> she was a model. So she was doing a recording with these two people who were in the fashion business and just outside of uh, New York. And uh, she'd been doing something with them. And so I tracked them down. And it turned out that they were desperate to see if they could get their money back from the money they'd put into her doing a record. And they they did not want to be in the record business. It just happened like that. So I met with them. And uh, I remember this very clearly. They came to my office and they were very nervous, you know, and they were really hoping that I'd be able to make a deal with them because that the record they thought was going to be costing about ten to $15,000, but it was closer to about $60,000. So they were in a state. So when I went and sat with them and they, I said, well, can you play me a bit of the record that you're working on? And they put the record on <clears throat> and it was a song called La Vie en Rose, but it had been recorded by a kind of drum machine. And, the, and so she put on the, they put on the record. Uh, Grace wasn't there or anything. It was just these, this couple in, his, in the clothing business. And they put on the record and there was a drum machine and all it played was a drum machine. There was no vocal, there was no instruments, nothing. And the drum machine played for about two and a half to three minutes before I heard a voice. And by the time I was at two and a half to three minutes, I thought, oh my gosh, it's a disaster. This is going to end in tears. And then suddenly I heard the voice and the voice sounded great. And I said to him, Okay, I'll buy the re record off you, and t that's how it started. Really, from literally from as simple as that. I hadn't met Grace. I just heard her voice uh, when it when the record started, and 
And that was it. And then she made the guy who had been producing that record, uh, which it was called Portfolio. That was her first album. And it did quite well. Not very well, but quite well. And then the second record he did, it didn't do so well. The third record also didn't do so well. And when I say didn't do so well, I'm not sure we would even release them. But then that was a time where I thought I would love to like work with her personally in the studio. And I had a studio in Nassau, the Bahamas. And so I put together a, a band to come and play for her. Four people from Jamaica, one person from France, one from England, and all of whom didn't know each other. The four from Jamaica knew each other, but they didn't know each other. They didn't know what was happening. Grace didn't really know what was happening. I'm not the best organized person in the world so nobody really had been told exactly what was happening so right at the beginning it felt like it could have been a disaster but in fact it turned around completely and it was wonderful and we had three or four albums of grace from that and going back to la vian rose amazing what you identified in that which i hadn't realized is that the producer on her music before they were removing her from the process more and more and you That's recognize right. you have to bring her back in Yes, they did remove her. They removed her from it. But, you know, I think it was because when I got the band and she was there, she put a lot of work into it, in, into singing. She would be rehearsing in the morning for hours, you know, on her voice. And it was one of those things where it's like magic or whatever you call it. I call it magic. They just pulled together because the band, the Jamaicans, didn't know who were these two people who had come from Europe. Who were these people? <laughs> you know, and the people from Europe didn't have no idea who the Jamaicans were. So in the first couple of days, nobody was really getting on too well. In fact, what happened was the husband of Grace at the time, who was a brilliant photographer and art director and huge talent himself. And he'd done this photograph of Grace looking like an American soldier sitting down, looking like a GI and looking very serious. And I said, you got to blow up the picture and, and put it on the wall of the studio. And so everybody can see that that's what I want the record to look like and sound like. <laughs> That's the thing you do. You bring unexpected artists together and just something new and alchemy takes place. I'm also thinking back to Concrete Jungle, how you brought in Wayne Perkins, and it adds just other element that makes the song resonate even more. Yes, that's true. I heard him playing and I love the way he played. And it was kind of what I wanted Bob to do was that musicianship adding to his songs. I absolutely felt for Bob to really make it worldwide, as it were. He needed to change just something a little bit. I didn't want him to change what he was doing, not his lyrics and everything else like that. It was more the, the instrumentation of it. So in, instead of it being a certain Jamaican music was known as ska, which was the offbeat song played by guitar. And that was the, the kind of lead thing of Jamaican music, which became really popular. But I felt for Bob to be able to reach a wider audience, that he needed to move away a little bit from that and focus more and more on his lyrics. It takes it to a whole other level. And what Grace Jones said about you so concisely, you know how to get the very best out of people. You're a mover and a shaker and a mischief maker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. She's a character. <laughs> yes, and beyond. She is. She's um, unique. She's unique, I tell you. 
She looks exactly the same. This is more than 40 years later. She looks exactly the same. It's unbelievable. There's some magic going on there. And then, of course, for you two, and Bono says of you that, that you're like the, the magic man, I guess he calls you. And that when he first met you in your flip-flops in the pub, he thought, this guy is unemployable. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Somebody called me from my office in England. He was, a, he, he was doing the press and he called me. I was in Jamaica and he told me there's a band in England that you should come over and see because I think they're great. So Bob Marley was doing a concert in London. And so I was going to be going there anyhow. So I thought after the concert, maybe they can set up that the band can play in a little club somewhere and I can come and listen to them. And so that was set up. And after the show, it was about half an hour, 45 minutes to go to the club. And it was a tiny little club. And I went in. The band had sort of booked the club. They hadn't really booked it for an audience. They just wanted to have somewhere where they could play so that I could see them and listen. And when I went to the club, I saw them. And they started, and I thought, my gosh, they're, they're really good. This band are really, really good. And they, just the team of four of them were just solid. There was something about them. They were just like a strong team. And also, there was a guy there who I met, and he was their manager. And I was pretty sloppy, normally sort of sandals and never really dressed properly. And I went in the club. There was this man there who was dressed, you know, for business dressed for serious, you know, and that was clear. It wasn't just a casual little thing. This was this was somebody who was a manager. And I was really impressed because I thought, you know, he can really bring this band through. So the band themselves played and the band were great. I liked them. I absolutely liked them. But there wasn't anything that I feel that I personally could have contributed to except the fact that they had somebody there who was a manager who was a properly dressed serious person you know and i loved the band and i knew that they would make it because there was a determination from them and bono himself was somebody who's just had a driving force which just came out of him you know and as i said this manager seriously dressed was there in this scruffy little club but I felt that he's going to be able to bring the band all the way. And I went back and I said to my company, I said, I want to sign the band and I want you to follow the manager. And that was really it. The Harder They Come, that film was uh, made by a very close friend of mine. And it was at a period where Jamaican music had started to really catch fire a bit. It was certainly selling in England. It was starting to grow and there was interest in England and Europe, not really in America. America wasn't interested in it at that period in time at all. But it was really decided to try and get this across, to do a film, so you could get a feel for where this music was coming from. And a man called Perry Hensel, who's a very good friend of mine, he wanted to do a film, and he me one time and said, there was an album cover on Jimmy Cliff, who was one of the other artists that I was working with from early. And he said, he's the guy I really want to be the leader of the film. And so I said, okay, that's great, go ahead. And so Jimmy Cliff 
really became the leader of that film. And that film really sort of expanded the whole image and the sort of and point of view of Jamaican music and Jamaican life. That film was very, very important to get Jamaican music known in the world. Well, that started from the sound system guys. There were about four of them. Uh, Cox and Dodd was the main one, Duke Reed, King Tubby. And they created these incredibly massive speakers. And you could hear music from five miles away from them. And that was the whole scene in Jamaica. So it wasn't that anybody was making records to get on the radio because nobody would play Jamaican music on the radio, even in Jamaica. So the way to get music across was the sound systems. So it was like really the sound systems, they would be playing on Saturday, Friday nights, Saturday nights. It was unbelievable. That was where all the action was. But it wasn't really getting out of Jamaica. It wasn't really get, getting anywhere other than what I was actually doing was driving around in England, t taking the records to the record shops. So that's really how it sort of started to spread in England. Well, London was happening very much happening in the film business in England. The great movies were being made out of England. And also the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, all that really started to explode. And what was really great, the music that they were loving was the music which was coming from the black music from America, the blues, New Orleans, of course, St. Louis, those different parts. That music was coming to England, and that was what was really happening. Jamaican music was creeping up from the way I mentioned to you, basically through the Jamaican communities who lived around London and Birmingham and Bristol, etc., there was one time particularly that Mick asked me to come and meet with him because I think he'd sort of heard the records that were coming up from me, mainly Jamaican records and things. And was that's what he wanted me to come and meet, meet with him to talk about. He was leaving Decca and he wanted to go to another label. And, and I said, it makes absolutely no sense for you to come to my label because you're already a huge what you're doing. So, you know, if Decker isn't delivering for you, then, you know, PMI should be the company you should go to because there's nothing really that I could have really helped him. I think he just really wanted to actually, now I come to think of it, like really just hang out for a bit and chat and talk about the Jamaican music because he became really interested in Jamaican. Jamaican music. He went to Jamaica. He kind of loved it. Well, Led Zeppelin, I was in a recording studio in England, going to be doing a, a record with Group called Traffic, which was led by Steve Winwood. And in those days, it took some time tuning your guitar up, different instruments and everything. Nowadays, all that's done in a second. But in those days, you know, there would be a lot of that, and I couldn't contribute to that. And it used to drive me nuts, wait, waiting until it got all ready to start songs. So I drifted into another room in the studio, and I went in and I heard a record coming out. And I, I thought, I've, I've never heard anything like this before in my life. It was just unbelievable. And I said, who are these guys? They said, it's a new band, really. I said, well, what are they called? They said, I don't know what their name is. Some, something Zeppelin or something like that. So I said, well, who's their manager? And it turned out that the manager was somebody who was a sort of a pal of mine, not a great pal, but a pal, because we shared an office. He was on the fifth floor and I was on the second floor in the office. And I went to see him and I said, listen, I heard the, your band. It was just unbelievable. So 
we kind of agreed a deal that uh, I would sign them for England and Europe. And the manager wanted to sign with Atlantic Records of America. So I said, okay, I'll have England, Europe, and you have America and Canada, etc. And we shook hands, and that was that. And, and of course, it never really turned out because when they went to America to make the deal with America, Atlantic said, no, we want them for the world. And so he came back to me and said, oh, we didn't really, really wanted to be with Atlantic and uh, I made a deal with them. And I said, never mind. And I didn't mind it because it wasn't something that I would have been able to help a lot on. I certainly loved what I heard in terms of that piece of music, but I didn't feel that it was something that I could be involved in managing them or doing their recordings. Well, it's really great if you can be involved in doing something which brings something to people, lifts things. You know, if you can find a way to, when I say find a way, you just get an instinct of something, oh, this is going to be fun, that can be great. I'm always looking, I don't know that I'm deliberately looking at things. I think things have happened and I've seen something or got a feel for something or feel for the person or, you know, I don't know. I think I've been given a lot of luck. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.